Hi, everybody. This is Ken Foster with the City of Dogs podcast, and I wanted to add a little uh, prologue, uh, for lack of a better word, to today's episode. I'm talking today with Jessica Dolce, who is a really great compassion fatigue educator. Um, And we recorded this a few weeks ago. So we were still, of course, in the midst of the pandemic, but not yet in the midst of what is going on right now at the beginning of June in 2020 um, with the police incidents and the protests and the threats of violence from the leadership of the country itself. Um, And so I wanted to acknowledge that and the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as the ongoing pandemic issue, because we're all dealing with a whole lot, even if we are not literally in the trenches on any of these things, uh, it can't help but affect us. Um, And one of the things that we talk about in today's episode is ways of sort of dealing with stress and sort of emotional exhaustion from from what goes on in life, really. Uh, it just happens that we have a lot going on in our lives right now. And so it makes it that much more challenging. And that's why I also just hope that people will listen to this episode and listen through to the end, because there's some great information coming. Uh, we talk, of course, about dogs, but we also talk about the joy and the habits that dog ownership can bring that are really positive and emotionally healthy, as well as some just some very basic exercises that we can do for ourselves uh, to address, you know, address the hopelessness or the confusion um, that we all are feeling to some degree. Uh, So listen in. And I also just want to share Jessica's website so that if you want more information, you can find her at compassioninbalance.com or jessicadolce.com. So if you are intrigued by what you hear her say, that's where you can find more information or contact her directly. And now we're just going to go into the episode. Hello, this is Ken Foster with the City of Dogs podcast. And this week, uh, my guest is certified compassion fatigue educator, Jessica Dolce, who is, I have to say, a really old colleague and a friend of mine, um, and who has been in the animal-associated business for for a long time in practically every capacity, uh, much like me. We've talked about that before. Um, we've each done sort of like every possible uh, task as, you know, volunteer at shelter, uh, to, you know, you've been a dog walker, you have an amazing blog, and now you are doing amazing work with um, Compassion Fatigue, which I suspect is maybe a a concept or a term that many people still aren't familiar with. So could you just start by talking about what that is exactly, and then then we can talk about why I brought you here. Okay, so hi. Um, compassion fatigue 
it's a bit of a frustrating term because um, there's no agreement on the definitions uh, related to this. So I'll just give you one that I think works best for me uh, and the folks I work with. And that is that compassion fatigue is a really intense, profound depletion, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Um, it really affects us on every level. And it, it, that depletion impacts our ability to feel and be caring. And so the simple way of saying it would be it's the fatigue of our compassion. More accurately, it's the fatigue of our empathy. And so it's really about showing up and being very caring, being in an empathetic relationship with an animal or a person who is suffering, who is in need. And over time, the qualities that likely led you to become a helper of some sort, your sensitivity, your empathy, your hopefulness that you could make a difference, those qualities start to erode over time. And you may find that you become very desensitized and numb and not just with the animals or people in your care, but also with the animals and people in your personal life, with yourself. Uh, and so this erosion of our empathy can really affect us on a lot of different levels. And um, I, feel, I feel like everyone's like, wait a minute, I thought we were going to talk about dogs. <laughs> 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 um, but bringing us Back to that. Compassion fatigue, I will say, is something that affects a lot of people that are in caring professions, which include people that, you know, work at animal shelters, work in rescue, um, as well as I imagine, you know, people like dog walkers who we don't necessarily think of as being in the same sort of field, but they're dealing with the, the lives of, you know, people and their pets and the things that may happen to them. Um, and how did you get into this? Um, um, you know, it's my, it was, what, what yeah. was the path that you took? <laughs> that led you it was not a, it was not a clear path, but it started um, when I had my own experience with compassion fatigue, probably 12 years ago. Now I was working full time at my local shelter in the kennels with the dogs. And I also had, um, co-founded a Pitbull advocacy group. Um, and doing those two things at the same time um, really took a toll on me in a way that I hadn't anticipated and that I couldn't figure out how to work with. And I really thought at the time that my inability to handle everything that was happening was because of a character flaw, that something was wrong with me, that I wasn't tough enough or strong enough to do this work. And it led to, one, me being very unwell physically, mentally, financially, all, all the ways that this stuff impacts us. Uh, but it also eventually led me to leaving the shelter and more painfully, um, a couple of years after that, leaving the Pitbull group that I had helped to build. And that was so painful. It And really, I felt ashamed of myself that I had failed. And because of that, I felt really compelled to understand what had gone wrong. What did I do to get myself 
um, in this position. And in the course of my own, um, you know, healing and getting well again is that's really when I finally stumbled on these ideas of compassion fatigue and burnout and secondary trauma. And it was like light bulbs going off. I had words finally to describe what I had experienced. And it was very clear then that it was not just me, but that it was a very common experience. Only nobody was talking about it. No one was sharing this information. And so when I got well, I mean, it took me a few years to really become myself again. I decided that I wanted to offer an online class to other people who worked in animal sheltering so that they could access the information that I now had. And it was really just a way of trying to reach back and, and give this information to all of my friends who were still doing the work. And there was such a big response to it that over time, this became my full-time job. So I went, you know, I, I went back and got my master's degree in education. I went through a training program uh, for compassion fatigue education that was pretty intense. Uh, and then I started launching bigger programs to really see if I could make an impact for people around this issue. So it's um, a long and winding tale that should, I feel like I should also tell you that both of my parents are therapists. So one of the reasons why this was really stunning, this experience for me, was because I grew up very much steeped in mental health culture. There was no stigma around mental health issues in my life because my parents are therapists. And so to get to my mid-30s and to be struggling in this way, uh, even with this background, uh, really shocked me that I had no idea that compassion fatigue was so prevalent. Uh, and when I turned around to my parents is, hey, why didn't you tell me about this? They said this was not in our training. You know, they're both social workers and this was not discussed for them. And so it's not just folks in animal welfare. Anybody working in a helping profession is likely to experience this. And up until recently, there has been very little education or discussion about how we stay well while we're helping others um, at an early enough point in our careers or education um, to, you know, help us not stumble in the dark for so many years. So, you know, that's why I'm here. Um, that that's a lot. It, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that struck me, though, uh, is um, when you talk about, you know, coming from a family of people who are in the field and and feeling like that would make you immune <laughs> to any troubles, you know. Um, yeah. And one of the reasons it struck me particularly is because I have um, I have a master's in counseling myself. And so I also have mistakenly thought <laughs> that I, you know, that I couldn't possibly have troubles because I am trained to identify and work with such things. Um, and yet, you know, nothing makes us immune to, to these feelings, especially um, during, you know, trying times. Um, but it, I wanted to talk because you also, of course, are an animal lover and have worked and maybe still occasionally work as a dog walker. Um, 
about the role that dogs in particular, but animals in general, play in our lives from from a sort of mental health perspective. Um, you know, I think everybody, everyone knows they make us feel good. That's why we have them. Um, but but as a trained professional, what can you add to that understanding that we have of our dogs and and our communities around dogs? So my um, first job with animals was starting my own dog walking business almost 20 years ago in Philadelphia. And that was a, an incredible experience, not only because I got to spend all day with dogs, um, but I would also um, spend all day in primarily one neighborhood in South Philadelphia. And I became part of an entire community of people that I never would have met had I not been in the local dog park. It's Mario Lanza Dog Park for the Philly folks that are listening. Uh, had I not been walking the same blocks over and over again, I knew every postal worker. I knew everybody who had lunch breaks at a certain time because I would see them at the dog park. I knew when their mothers were sick. I was there. We were there for each other every day, all day for many, many years. And it was the first time in my life. And I had lived in Philadelphia for maybe, I don't know, five or six, seven years before that. I, it was the first time I felt at home in Philadelphia. Um, and it really changed my whole experience of the city to be a part of this community of people that showed up every day to be with each other and not just because we loved watching our dogs play, but because we really enjoyed each other's company. And so dogs are an invitation into each other's lives that I think um, it's almost like a, it's a, it's a miracle. It gets past all of the adulting things we do, all the walls that we put up, um, especially in cities, I think, where we can really be self-contained. It just breaks it all down and allows us to talk to anybody, people we would normally never come into contact with uh, and share ourselves. And because we are watching them play while we're talking or we're walking together, that, I think, physical movement, the joyfulness of the play, it's literally changing our nervous systems. And so we become calmer and happier when we're watching this. And then we, that ripples out to everyone around us, you know, at the park or as we're walking. And so it's a very unique way of being in community with other people that I don't, I cannot think of another way that that happens. So I don't know if that's been your experience, but that was mine. And I, it's, it was a powerful one for me. Yeah, it's absolutely my experience as well. And my earliest adult dog relationships <laughs> were, um, were first when I went a uh, long time ago to Costa Rica, where I, you know, I didn't speak the language. I was living on a farm in a rural area. So, I, you know, there wasn't a whole lot that I felt I could immediately connect with. But there was a dog that just, as soon as I arrived on this farm, 
started showing up two or three times a day to check on me. <laughs> and it was like the most amazing thing to me because I was not really a dog person, or at least I, I wasn't actively a dog person. Um, and he would take me, he would like lead me around the property and into the village. And so like it was the conduit to which I fell in love with this whole uh, country yeah. of Costa Rica. Um, and that's when I, I came back from three months there and was like, I have to get a dog. And then that changed my relationship to New York City, where I was living at the time, um, you know, because I went to the dog park. I met people that I wouldn't have met otherwise who talked about things that weren't, you know, weren't the same things that I'd been talking about with my very closed circle of friends for yeah. years. Um and I became more involved in the community and all of those things because of of dogs. Yeah. Um, and that that is, you know, one of the things that I always try to celebrate in some way. Um, because I feel like there's still people who don't know this secret about dogs. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah, it's really true. For me, you know, I was thinking about um, there's a lot of dogs out there that don't necessarily enjoy being around other dogs. So not everybody gets to have the dog park experience and meet people that way. So for me, walking many, many dogs over the years that want to be alone, it has also connected me to places when I moved to Maine uh, and started walking dogs in Portland, I was no longer going to dog parks. But the dogs introduced me to neighborhoods. And because we would walk the same route day after day, year after year, it was, it became not only, um, a wonderful time to be with them, but a, a walking meditation for me where I passed the same houses and trees and, um, monuments for so long, day after day that it really became a, a a way of being um, super mindful and in touch with the present moment. So dogs for me have been this really amazing gift with bringing me into my environment in a way that I would never have the patience or tolerance to be that aware while I was just taking a walk by myself. But going at their speed and exploring things that they're exploring repetitively week after week helped me to find the really extraordinary small moments of my day in the places where I live. And so for those of you who don't have a dog that enjoys the dog park, it's even just being alone with your dog, like you were in Costa Rica, opens this like magical doorway <laughs> to see the world in such a different, detailed, connected way, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and the dog that I got when I was in New York, whose name is Brando, who I've written about many times in the past, <laughs> um, he became like many dogs. You know, when he was young, he loved the dog park, and then as he got older, he was kind of like, uh, you know, I don't like some of these new dogs. <laughs> and so we didn't go to the dog park as much, and we took more walks. So I also had that other experience of just exploring, you know, the city and navigating our way to new places because I wanted to keep it interesting for me and for him, but also because he had some, you know, some typical dog fears 
um, because he was giant but still young. You know, there were like certain statues he was terrified of, so we had to, you know, re-navigate our destination to avoid that statue. Um, all of which, you know, taught me and made me slow down and think because I was thinking in a way uh, for him rather than just looking for, you know, the most direct route from one place to another. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it, no matter which kind of dog you have, they open up a world to you, I think. Yeah. Um, and there were people, people would always see us and, and, you know, come up to us on the street and ask questions. Often they would ask if he was a hyena, <laughs> which I found just like, what, like, why are so many more than people... once? More than once, someone asked. Oh yeah, that? more than once. It was like, and ev- <laughs> eventually I just started saying yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, of course, yes. <laughs> He's a purebred hyena. Thank you for asking. Exactly. <laughs> I know. I spent a lot of money on him. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that you recognized how wonderfully unique he is. That's incredible <clears throat> that anybody asked that, let alone multiple people. All right. Well, multiple people in New York, and they were almost all, you know, like professional men in suits. So, <laughs> you know, I would think like, these people think I'm walking a hyena down the street? Like, I don't know what to make I mean, of this. Maybe they don't know what a hyena really is. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh um, but what do we do now <laughs> in a world that is on pause? Um, because obviously, as we're recording this, we are heading into, I think, week eight, maybe, of the pandemic. Um, and parks in New York City and other cities are closed. Um, you know, people are not interacting. Dogs, in many cases, are probably not getting the same uh, interaction outside of their home that they might have previously. Um, and and how do we navigate that change in not only our lives, but in the lives of our pets? Well, I mean, I'm still dog walking a little. I have a couple of clients left. And so the for me, it's they are my time outside. I mean, primarily, if I I think if I was not a dog walker at all, I would not be getting out of my house at all. Uh, and so I'm assuming many people are living in apartments and they have to take their dogs for a walk. And so even though it's not as social, it is a connection to the world um, that is, I think, profoundly important right now that we just see other people and we see the dogs, even if we can't be near each other. So I think still having having a dog right now still becomes um, a, a, like a, a key to the city in a way that um, other folks who don't have dogs are missing out on. But yeah, I think we're missing out on a lot of the fun, obviously, of being able to be social with each other. And I don't know that I have a good answer other than we're just going to have to be flexible and try to roll with the changes. It's not going to stay the same. Whatever it is right now, it's not going to stay this way. But we may not go back to the way that it was. And so, unfortunately, I think there's no great answer other than we're going to have to wait and see. And we'll, <laughs> it's very challenging to predict 
what our new way of interacting with each other will be. But for the moment, I think it may just be helpful to focus on how much we get out of being in our homes with our pets, how much comfort they provide us, particularly if we're living alone uh, and we're not with other humans, that we have our pets with us, that they are in a, an immense source of comfort and connection and really help us physically and mentally. So to be grateful for the time that you have with them. My mom um, has been quarantined for, I think, 10 weeks. She lives uh, in Westchester, New York. Um, and her, she was living alone with her dog and her dog just passed away yesterday. And I can't think of a better end of Lucy's life than to have spent the last 10 weeks all day with my mom. You know, that's not normally how they would have gotten to spend their time together because my mom goes to work. And I think it's a real, it turned out to be an enormous gift that the last couple of months of her life were just being completely in connection with her person. And for my mom, it's been a real gift to be able to take such good care of her. Uh, and so for all of us, wherever we are with our dogs, um, to just try to find that I think gratefulness that we can be in deep connection with them uh, in this time and that we're lucky to have them. I wouldn't want to be without them right now. Yeah. I, I mean, I live, <laughs> I was going to say I live alone with nine dogs. Do you? Yeah. Obviously <laughs> not at all alone. <laughs> um, but uh, I think when I first started quarantining myself, they were, a little unsure of what, what to think of it. Yeah. Um, you know, because I was home, but I was also having to work, which meant that I was home, but not necessarily paying attention to them. And I was talking for eight hours at a time to seemingly invisible people, you know? <laughs> um, and so there was just a, a I felt like a, a degree of puzzlement or even, you know, a sense of like, when is he leaving again? You know, like, <laughs> oh, we need to take a nap. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it has been amazing because I've seen, you know, I've seen a change in the way I interact with them, the way some of them interact with me, even though they've been with me for a long time now. Um, and just the other day, Bananas, who spends all of her time in my bed waiting for me to come back to bed, basically, <laughs> um, she's been venturing out more because I'm in the office all day. And so she'll come check on me multiple times a day. And the other day I was taking a online workout and she um, came and sort of joined me in the workout, which, um, which was just so wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I got to, you know, I felt it's silly, but I like lifted her up so that everybody else on the zoom workout could see her. <laughs> <laughs> which was a highlight of like, the workout for everyone. I am sure. <laughs> right. I know. <laughs> um. And then I was like, you know, at some point this is going to end. And then, then I'm going to be really sad. My dogs are going to, you know, wonder what happened. Why is he leaving the house again? Yeah. Um, another thing that you've been doing lately, which, um, which I participated in is that you had a four week, uh, online workshop in sort of dealing with the issues that people in, animal welfare, but also really you opened it up to anybody who, who wanted to join 
um, just the issues of dealing with this unknown that we're all facing um, and the issues of um, various aspects of self-care. So the workshops were divided into four areas. The first was our body and working on um, self-regulation skills, which is a really important thing for all of us to be able to do under normal circumstances, but particularly right now, being able to get ourselves out of fight or flight, or out of freeze. Uh, we moved into, what did we do next? Our mind, we worked with our thoughts because we're all having really anxious uh, thoughts right now. So learning how to fact check the way that we think. And we also looked at our emotions and how much we repress, uh, particularly by staying really busy. We avoid all of our emotions. And what's come up in the pandemic is that because a lot of us aren't working, we're not able to stay busy and outrun our feelings. So there's been a lot of stuff coming up for folks. And then the last one was really about being connected with each other, with our pets, with our spirituality, with something bigger than us. And so I was really trying to look at, you know, in a practical way, these different areas of our well-being and how they're being impacted by COVID-19 and what we can do right now, wherever we are, to work with uh, ourselves so that we can suffer a little less. This is painful no matter what we do, but uh, we don't have to suffer quite as much if we um, approach ourselves with a little bit of compassion. Uh, and what was interesting for me in putting these webinars together was I realized that there was nothing I was sharing that I wouldn't share in my typical compassion fatigue work. And that's because what we're experiencing with this pandemic is trauma exposure. It is a huge amount of stress. There is, um, and the way that we're responding to it is normal, pretty much no matter how we're responding to it. So it's a normal response to be anxious or to be self-medicating or to be trying to stay busy or to feel irritable or uh, angry. All of those are normal responses to a pandemic, you know, to not being able to be very productive right now or to focus. All of those things, normal responses to a pandemic. Those are also normal responses to working in a helping profession and being exposed to trauma and suffering and stress day after day. And so, you know, what I realized is that in some ways, helping professionals who have spent some time learning self-care skills or stress management or resiliency skills, whatever we want to call them, if you've done some of that work, it will serve you really well right now. And some of the people I know who are doing the best in terms of being able to kind of roll with this uh, are folks who have been through a lot and have had a lot of exposure to trauma in their lives and have done some really hard work of healing and learning new skills. And they're helping them now to stay in this great period of discomfort and uncertainty that we're all experiencing. And so sometimes, uh, you know, what we've been through in the past can really help us um, have the skills and the ability to, you know, roll with this 
massive challenge that we're all experiencing. So I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> so. No, you, you, you did. You did. I, what struck me also um, in taking the course was also like how many of the sort of skills that we need to make ourselves develop in caring for ourselves are, first of all, things that we kind of know but forget about, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and also so many of them are things that I think our animals just innately practice uh, from from what I can see anyway. I'm not I'm not like a animal behaviorist by any means, but you know that that we sort of have unlearned as humans as far as you know sort of recognizing when you know when we need rest, when we need to just sort of go into the corner and curl up for a while and that's okay to do yeah. that. Um and when, you know, when to just sort of take note of of exactly where we are and who we are and allow ourselves just to be. Um there was one uh exercise that you gave us about sort of using the five senses. I was wondering if you could uh, share that. Sure. It's just a really simple grounding practice for whenever you're feeling really overwhelmed. Sometimes you'll hear people say to focus on your breath or to take deep breaths if you're feeling really anxious or upset, but that is not always available to us. Sometimes focusing on deep breathing can actually make us feel more anxious. And so if you're ever feeling emotionally overwhelmed or panicky or anxious or or even just you're really lost in your thoughts um, and you want to help yourself calm down, um, get grounded in the present moment, get out of those anxious future thoughts, you can use your five senses as a way to um, orient yourself to your environment. And it's very simple. It's naming five things that you can see, four things that you can I think, touch, three things that you hear, two things that maybe you smell and one thing that you taste. Was that five? Did I get, did I get to five? Maybe. I think, I think you got them. Yeah. <laughs> I I, it's hard when I can't. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, and it can be any combination. It could be five things that you hear. It doesn't matter what, what you do, but the idea is to really get yourself out of that fight or flight, that overwhelm being maybe in the future and getting yourself calm and grounded in the present moment by orienting yourself to the environment. And another simple one that you can do, like if you are walking your dog, um, is just to point and name uh, 20 or 30 things that you see as you're walking. And it sounds so basic that it's really easy to shrug this stuff off, but we're, we are pretty basic in a lot of ways. Uh, and when we're in fight or flight, we really um, benefit from doing things like labeling what we see very in a very simple way doesn't have to be anything very descriptive just stop sign traffic light garbage can uh but when we're doing that it brings our um prefrontal cortex back online uh and that rational part of our brain gets bumped offline when we're in fight or flight and so just those simple things of um naming what we can see and smell and taste or labeling the things that are around us can help bring that uh, rational part of our brain back online and help us to get regulated and calm 
and I have used these many, many times in my life. Particularly, I find it helpful when I am crying somewhere that I don't want to be crying. Uh, so if you burst into tears in a public place and you really wish you weren't doing that, uh, using those uh, can be a really helpful way to um, kind of bring yourself back to a calmer place. And um, you can cry when you get home or when it's a safer time to do it. Uh, but I, <laughs> you know, there, there are moments when you really wish you weren't crying. And those two things have been really helpful uh, for me. Yeah, there are times when crying is not uh, practical or even useful, <laughs> although having a good cry is an important facet of daily yes, life. I, I think. agreed. <laughs> so I also, the another of the terms that I heard in your course that was new to me and yet immediately struck something familiar in me was the idea of vicarious resilience. So could you talk a little bit, a little bit about that? Yeah. So vicarious resilience, I think it is helpful to name the opposite first. So we know kind of how it exists in relationship with its counterpart is um, vicarious uh, trauma. And what that means is that over time, when we're exposed to a lot of traumatic stories, you know, we're watching the news or at work, we're exposed to a lot of animals or people who are suffering. Um, it begins to change the way that we see the world. We see the world as a less safe place. We start to see ourselves differently. Um, and it usually erodes or changes the way that we feel about other people. We don't see them as, as trustworthy or we don't see their goodwill as easily as we did before we were exposed to all of this trauma over time. So vicarious trauma happens over time, not overnight. And most people in helping professions find that they are changed in some negative ways by the work that they do. And it's a bell that can't really be totally unrung in the sense that you just see the world differently than you did before you were exposed to what you've seen on the job. But what we don't talk about enough is the flip side uh, or another experience that we have, uh, which is vicarious resilience. And that is over time being exposed to so many people and animals through our work, who have recovered, who have gone on to live really good lives, who have healed, who are joyful, and, you know, really, um, th they are resilient, and we are privileged to bear witness to their growth and healing and resilience, and it can make us um, stronger and more resilient because we are in close proximity to them. And so the work can change us what we're exposed to on the job can change us in really positive ways that make us, I think, um, I guess a simple way to say it is when you're working in a helping profession, your lows might be very low, but you also get access to some beautiful highs, you know, high points where it's the beauty that we get to see is really profound uh, and not everybody gets to see it. And so that vicarious resilience, our ability to witness others growing and healing and, you know, being resilient, really, it, it really provides us with, um, 
uh, a great, I think, sense of not just resilience, but I think also of interconnectedness and joy and uh, patience and all kinds of good qualities that can come out of being a part of other people's lives and animals' lives as they heal. Over the past years, you know, I've worked with like like many people. I've you know, I've adopted or found animals that became pets either for me or for other people um, who, you know, had issues of trust or uncertainty or nervousness at, at times that are now, um, you know, that are now joyful and, and happy. And I've often thought about the fact that, that I personally have struggled with um, recovering from trauma, um, while at the same time, you know, seeing dogs that came from the worst of possible circumstances who are able to move forward in some way, in, in many cases, in, in great ways, where it's almost as if um, they, they're managing to completely, you know, live in the present and move uh independently from their past. Um, and so the, when, when you were talking about vicarious resilience, that was, that's why it struck something in me, I think, is that um, I'm, I'm often inspired by these pets that I've seen, these animals that have gone on to, um, I want to say greatness, but in, often it's the greatness of just getting to live an ordinary life. Pretty great, you know? yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and thinking and reminding myself, like, like, this is the example I need to follow, you know, um, because it's so easy to get caught up in, in the fact that bad things happen to us. Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily help us to hold on to that, um, or to dwell on it. Or maybe to define ourselves um, by it. I it's think, the definition, I think, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, and now, whether you're in a helping profession or not, you are in the midst of this current crisis we're in. You know, you're having to care for yourself in a different way. You're having to navigate your employment situation in a different way. If you live with other people or with family, you have people that are all working from home. If they're lucky enough to be working, they're taking classes from home. It's a high stress situation for everyone to manage being um, on top of each other in every aspect of their life, yeah. I think. Um, and so, so again, I think that's why so much of what you've been saying, while it initially um, came from your desire to help people in the helping fields, it completely applies to all of us because whether we realize it or not, we are helpers, um, and, uh, particularly now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, My parting thought for everyone, no matter what you do or who you live with or what animals you may or may not have in your life, um, my parting thought is just to be really kind to yourself right now, that it is as hard as you think it is. You're not struggling because something is wrong with you. This is really hard. And we're all trying to do the best that we can. 
and we're not always going to do a great job with the other people around us. So we need to be kind to ourselves, probably to apologize often and to accept the apologies of others and to try to be the best possible friend we can be to ourselves. Um, and when we are kind to ourselves in that way, it really does ripple out to our pets, our family, our coworkers, whether we're in the same physical space or we're just seeing them on the computer on Zoom. Cultivating that kind of kindness within you really does ripple out and we need that as much as possible. And so it's never a waste of time to rest or to take care of yourself or to talk to yourself the way you would talk to your dog or your friend or a kid, you know, to be really um, a good, good friend to yourself. And it will benefit not just you, but everyone that you come into contact with remotely or in your own home during this really tough time. So be nice to yourself. Be a good friend. Well, that's a good way of ending things. I, I try. Well, thank you for joining me on the City of Dogs podcast. Yeah. <laughs>